another time I bought an adult boa constrictor and it was about eight foot and I just got it home and it was in a duvet case from the shop and I put it on the floor and opened the bag up, stood up over it and it's just come and grabbed my arm. Thinking about it now, that was the worst thing I could have done. Why on earth you would try to unbag a snake on the floor, standing over it? And I've always had big vivarium, like you see behind me. And for about a month, I felt really guilty putting these ball pythons, even though they've all got hides in, they've all got substrate, they've all, majority of them have got plants in there as well. I still felt guilty. I remember saying to my partner, I don't know, I like doing this. I said, I'm used to seeing Welcome to episode number 107 of the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Today I'm joined by Luke Cordell, who is a UK-based reptile keeper. He keeps a wide variety of species and also has a ball python breeding project that he's just begun in the last year or so. So in the episode, Luke gives us a little bit of history about how he got into reptiles and how he has kept them over the years. And also we discuss breeding ball pythons. So of course, people listen to the podcast. I have a quite a large array of people that listen to the show. Some people actually surprisingly do have quite a few ball python breeders that listen to the show. We have people who just keep naturalistically and sort of everything in between. And I think, as you guys know, my focus of the podcast is to push our care forward and to push herpetoculture forward and promote those ideas. So I thought it was great to have Luke on the podcast. He is a ball ball python breeder. He uses the tub system. And we talk about that. We talk about can we improve on that? Are there ways to make that better? When is it okay to use a rack system? When should we, or what types of rack systems should we start to move away from? And, and we also talk about the uh, some of the addiction of getting into morph breeding. And, and Luke is a morph breeder. And, and I've, I've said so many times, there's nothing particularly wrong with morph breeding itself as long as the animals are healthy. It's the practices that we begin to promote in herpetoculture that are the main problems and we talk about that sort of greed mindset that sometimes takes a hold of people and maybe starts to push them away from having the passion for the animal and more of a passion for attempting to make money so we talk about that Luke talks about even you know combating that the addiction that can come from from wanting to breed morphs and and having to watch yourself to make sure you don't go down that rabbit hole too far. So it was a really fascinating conversation. And as I said, we're we're trying to push the care forward. I think this is a great way to start talking to a ball python breeder and, you know, hearing his perspective and, and what we can do to do a little bit better. So I do hope you enjoy the episode. If you are interested in looking for the show notes for this particular episode or any other episode that has been recorded, head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you'll find all the show notes for everything. You can also find a link to our shop and you can buy yourself a sweater or a t-shirt. Of course, $5 is automatically donated to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy. You can come join us over on patreon.com slash animals at home if you want early access to episodes as well as the opportunity to hang out on Zoom, usually once every four to five weeks. Our next Zoom hangout is in October, or it's October right now, October 22nd or 21st, I believe. So if you sign up on Patreon, you'll see the information there. So if you want to join us, that would be awesome. Thank you so much to customreptilehabitats.com. My alarm for one of my thermostats is going off. Hopefully you guys can't hear it. Thank you very much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you are interested in any reptile-related equipment, make sure you head to the affiliate links in both the YouTube description or the show notes. And by the way, that alarm is not a big deal. It's just when it comes on in the afternoon, it's always a little bit cold, so the thermostat lets me know that it's cold, but nothing to be alarmed about. Let's jump into the episode. Enjoy. 
Well, Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. No, that's not a problem. Glad to be here. I'm definitely looking forward to chatting with you because I know you listen to the show and you also, you're a breeder as well. And I think that we can have a really interesting conversation because I think you come at reptile hobbies in a different perspective than many of the guests. There's, you know, there's many people that have a similar perspective to you, but not a lot of people come on the show and we chat about it. So we're going to get into that. I'm really looking forward to that. But before, let's get into just, you know, the basics. So we ask everybody, how did you get into keeping reptiles in the first place? Okay, right. Well, my dad always had reptiles ever since I was born. So you can kind of say that he got me into it. But he was the big cat keeper at one of the zoos over here before I was born. So he's always been into the animals. But yeah, he's had pine snakes and even had a pair of indigos at one point. That is amazing. You know, it's funny because I ask that question to most guests and you are, the, I think, the second person in a row to talk about your, your one of your family members, your parents owning reptiles. And most people, I think, I feel like we're the first generation where reptile keeping has become popular, sort, sort of the, the age category that we're in. So if, our, if your parents had reptiles, then they were definitely on the fringe. And so the guest that will be released later this week, which is uh, the episode that I recorded before you was the same story her parents owned reptiles as well and i feel like if if that generation was keeping reptiles it was a fringe experience for sure yeah 100 percent. i know for a fact my granddad never had any reptiles yeah yeah that, that's awesome uh, so your dad was a zookeeper you were saying and he worked with the tigers and lions or what was he working with at the zoo um yeah he was working with the tigers and lions he done a bit with the gorillas and stuff as well but it was more with like cheetahs and stuff really he actually got to meet Princess Diana. There's an old VHS of him playing football with Princess Diana and a cheetah. Really? Yeah, it fascinates the hell out of me. That is amazing. That is amazing. I know. Did you get to interact with those animals at all? Or I mean, obviously not no, interact with them was, personally. But Sadly, this was all before I was born. We oh, okay. Jobs. Yeah, I would have loved it. Cool. And then so... You're obviously you're saying your dad owned reptiles, and then when did you start keeping yourself? What what what? How did that start? Um, probably I left school at the age of sixteen, and then once you start getting your own money, you start getting your own reptiles. Really, yeah. And it really started from there. What did you originally get into? Boas mostly. I've always had a big thing for boas, and I had a Burmese as well at that time. But yeah, mostly bows. Mm. And then how did it progress? Because, obviously, you know, it's a classic reptile story. You get into one species and it expands from there. So when you were 16, you were still quite young. Did it take you a long time to build up a collection or did you just kind of get right into it as you started buying animals? I probably built up my collection to about between eight and ten animals. And then I hit a certain age where I found out I was not home much. Mm-hmm. So then I rehomed a collection for a couple of years and didn't have anything for about four years. Um, and, and what brought you back? Fascination. I've never stopped loving them. I just, I'm a different part of my life now where I've had luckily enough to have twin girls. So I've got more time on my hands and I'm not out and about as much. So I thought I could just get back into it really. It's, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say they have twins, so now they have more time on their hands. <laughs> yeah, my partner wouldn't agree with you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I guess what you're saying is you just end up, you're at home more often. Yeah, I'm at home a lot more. Yeah. 
And so when you did get back into with that four or five year hiatus, did you get back into boas or did you, were there species that grabbed your attention first? Yeah, my first snake back into it was a boa, funnily enough. And then it happened to be a bull snake, but I, I had bull snakes before and I've always had a passion for them. It's funny because I remember boas were the first snake species that I really got drawn to. I actually didn't really, I wasn't really attracted to keeping snakes at all. And then I was just sort of wanted to focus on geckos and lizards and whatnot. And then for some reason, boas just were fascinating to me. And that's where I first got into keeping boas. And then that's sort of now it's like, I don't think I would discriminate against any snake. I love all species of snake. They're all fascinating to me. But for whatever reason, early on, it was only boas for me. And I just don't even know why it was. Do you know why you were fascinated with them? I don't know. I don't know. It's because I had one when I was younger. I fell in love with it. Or it's just the colors, the patterns, the temperament. I don't know. It's just something about them. Yeah, yeah, there's, there is. They're, they have a nice personality. They're calm, and and yeah, they're they're a great species to to keep. So, your your collection expanded. Like you said, you're getting a bunch of different things, and then you started to get sucked into the world of breeding. I'm sure. At what point, or were you always breeding at that time? No, I've, first time I've actually bred anything was this year. Oh, okay. So you've just just started breeding. Literally, just dipped my toes into the bull python morphs. That's all. Gotcha, gotcha. Were, so when you were when you got back into the hobby and you said you had a bull snake and a couple of uh, boas and whatnot, did you gravitate towards ball pythons at the time as well, or did it kind of slowly build up from there? I'd say that was probably six months after I started looking online and seeing all these morphs I didn't have a clue about, and it just pulled me in, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes, they they do have an allure about them for sure. You know especially when you're even just coming back to the hobby or new to the hobby, there's something about morphs that just like draw people in. And maybe you could just quickly run through what you keep right now. Just, and you mentioned a few, but maybe just run through uh, what your collection is made up of. Um, okay. I've got a Burmese python, well, two actually, a male and a female. One that's about seven foot, the male. I had him since he was a hatchling, absolutely outstanding animal. Um, recently got an albino female not that I ever plan on breeding those because I don't know anyone that's got enough time on their hands to have Burmese so there's not really any market out there for them in my opinion yeah I agree so there's no need to breed those but um, I've got bull snakes um, pine snakes um, a king rat snake that's a challenging species what's Um, challenging about it? I don't know if it's just him, but from what I've heard from a few other keepers, instead of wanting to go away from like you, if you go in the vivarium, he comes at you and all he wants to do is bite you. <laughs> Even feeding time, he will miss the tongs and what's on the end of the tongs and come at me instead. And they're not small. They're not. He's about six and a half, seven foot. And yeah, he's definitely a challenge. Yeah, but they're a beautiful species, another really beautiful species. Yeah, definitely. But also, I've got a cave racer as well. That's a stunning species. Um, We've got five boas here, a king snake, which we rescued, and the rest is all just ball pythons. And how many ball pythons do you have right now? Um, Around 35. Okay. So you got a you got a full shop. You got quite a few animals in there. Yeah, I've definitely 
got quite a bit in the last year. Do you feel like you've hit a cap as far as the amount of animals you can have? Space-wise at the moment, okay. yeah, until we move, yeah. So one, one thing I, I know we wanted to talk about was just keeping a variety because especially on the ball python side with ball python breeders, a lot of times they focus on just that species. It's like just ball pythons and maybe they have one or two, you know, what you might classify as like a pet, a, a separate species. But for the most part, it's just like 95% ball pythons. Now you have quite an array of species. So I guess why do you focus on keeping a variety and, and did you ever want to just focus on one species or was that never attractive to you? No, I love all snakes. I would never keep just the ball pythons. I would never keep just bull snakes. I, I just love all snakes. If I could have more in the space that I've got, I would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there is that sort of addicting nature to keeping snakes, especially when you start getting into different species, because not only are you getting different appearances, you're getting different behaviors and different you know, care standards and different you know, enclosures uh, set up so you get to look at different things and it's sort of a never-ending story once you start diversifying into different species. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I quite like the challenging species as well, the ones that give you a bit of a hard time getting them out and stuff like more like the colubrids are i wouldn't want my burmese to have that king rats behavior for sure <laughs> no no definitely not do you have any on the list that you would want to get eventually as far as colubrids go or i guess any species go eastern indigos i would okay. love a pair that i would if i didn't have the space i would make space i would sell some of my collection just for the eastern indigos are they popular in the UK? I mean, I shouldn't say are they popular because they're really not popular anywhere, but are there some in the UK? The only pair I've ever seen was my dad's and he <laughs> got them off of the Simon Keys, who's the guy from Snakes in the City. He used to be a local breeder to us years ago and he had them in and then my dad had them for about two months and then a zoo contacted my dad and said, we'd like to purchase them for a breeding project. And it was only because it was going to a breeding project that my dad let him go. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that Simon Keys snake and the snakes in the city? What 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 is it? That's a show, right? Yeah, that's the show where they're in South Africa and they're constantly catching like black mambas like, at people's houses and stuff. So the breeder. So so can can you say that again? Simon Keys. He's from the UK, and so he knew your dad, or yeah, we, I used to go around his probably every three weekends and, and he'd have a, like a whole room full of snakes that he'd either imported in or breed or bred himself. And it was, yeah, I loved it. That's amazing. So there's probably some passion for keeping snakes that came from those experiences as well. I'm sure. Yeah. hundred percent. I was like a kid in the candy shop around there. Yeah. That's amazing. So then as far as breeding goes, like you said, this was your first season. Did you breed anything else or you just focus on, on ball pythons? At the moment, just ball pythons because we're a bit restricted at the minute with space. But I would like to get into breeding some colubrids. And what was the what what made you choose to to start breeding? Was there was there an experience that you had or a moment that you came to where you thought I, I just want to get into breeding? It was just seeing all the crazy morphs that were being produced. Uh, just blew my mind. So you just wanted to try see what it, see what yeah. it's like. Yeah, exactly that. And then I actually went to pick up some substrate who off of now a good friend of mine, and they still breed ball pythons, but they had like a, an amazing setup. And it literally, I walked in and just was mind blown. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's that's you know those experiences where you're just like 
you know, you got to try it yourself or else it's, it's, it's one thing to see it, but another thing to actually, you know, attempt to do it yourself. So I want to talk about breeding and I want to talk about, but before we go too far, I have a few other questions. The first is, I know I had heard you say on, on Instagram, I think you do have a Cernon boa, which is, you know, one of my dream animals as well, a beautiful species of boa constrictor. And I think you also have a, a hybridized species as well. So you were showing off this Cernon boa and talking about how you do eventually want to breed, but you were not obviously not going to breed it to the hybrid boa that you currently have. Maybe you could just explain that situation for us. Yeah, I actually got the Surinam cross first. Mm. And I see it online. It, a local breeder had it, and I just couldn't believe the pattern on it. I thought, that looks just like a Surinam, but only brighter. So I had to have it because I don't. you don't really see true red tail boas available that often. Did you know it was a cross at the time? Yeah, I I knew it was a cross. Gotcha. Yeah, 100% knew it was a cross. The guy explained exactly what it is. I got to see both parents. But yeah, I fell in love with him. It was absolutely stunning snake. And then about two weeks later, I got contacted by a local store that I'm good friends with. And they said they had a hold back Suriname from their parent. And it was a female. So then I put that a picture of that up as you do on Instagram. And then I got bombarded with messages. Oh, you're not going to breed that with that, them two together, are you? I said, no. I said, it may come across like that, that I'm going to, because I've just got a male and then two weeks later I've got a female. But no, I want to keep the pure bloodlines, especially in the localities of Bowers. Yeah, there's something about, I mean, I don't know, Vin Russo, obviously, breeder in the United States, is very big on keeping bloodlines clean. And I don't know if it was necessarily sort of his mindset that really drove most boa keepers to think that same way. But I think most boa keepers feel that way. I shouldn't say most, but many do, wanting to keep the lines clean. And just like yourself, I have a boa who's also a hybrid. It's a Suriname and Colombian boa. And I don't even know how far back the generations go for the cross i do know it's in my paperwork somewhere but it that sort of thing does happen and but there is something about keeping the line pure that just makes a lot more sense to me especially when it's a cernon boa when you're dealing with it really a beautiful animal and when you cross that emperor line through you're probably going to lose some of that red tail does the cross have a, a bright red tail or is it sort of muted like yeah most? he's definitely got even more of a brighter red tail but i think that's because the mum was pure Surinam, and the dad was, I've got it written down here, um, a Surinam cross super salmon jungle boa. So there oh, was okay. quite a lot of Surinam in there. So he's probably more like three-quarters Surinam. And, yeah. And, and, okay, that makes sense. And did did the breeder say why? It was him that did the cross, right? Yeah, him that did the cross, yeah. And was he just looking to get a, you know give a morph into that Surinam line, or what was his mentality there? I'd say the guy was about 16 years old and I think he just got into breeding. I couldn't believe it when I turned up. I was amazed. I was like, wow, you've done this. You were this young, you've done it. Fair play to you. But I think it was a case of he had a female and he had a male, put them together and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that does happen a lot in the reptile industry. You just because sometimes it can be hard or you, you know you don't want to go out and buy another animal and you say okay well i have a female and a male here let's just see if they produce and then but it does really muddy up the lines especially if it's a younger kid who i mean i'm not sure about this kid specifically but a lot of times they don't know exactly what they're breeding and then it's just lost at that point so is your goal to find a, you're you're going to try to find a male now surinam yeah i'm 100% looking out for a pure surinam male yeah 
yeah, that, that would be amazing. How, how much do they go for right now in the UK? They vary because I got mine luckily for two hundred pounds, but I have seen them on North Market for an excess of five hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the breeder and the lo- the specific lines. I think that's in it. To be fair, yeah, they're definitely not cheap in Canada. I would say probably five six hundred dollars at least for sure maybe more than that but they are a, a beautiful animal so i'm happy to hear that you want to keep those lines clean and so the other thing i wanted to chat about i, I think you also breed your own rats right yeah i started that about january time and how's that going so far it was a headache to get started yeah i bet uh, it had its trials and errors that's for sure, i could say the least so what what point did you get to where you realized it's going to be cheaper for me to start breeding? Because it is such a big undertaking to take care of a whole set of rats. Was was there a moment where you're just like, I'm spending too much on, on frozen thought, I need to do it myself? Or Yeah, that was the biggest concern was where I hadn't started breeding yet. And I was poor, because you think two years ago, I only had about four snakes. And then all this has happened pretty quick. So trying to feed all of that is quite an expense. Yeah. And then I had a couple of local breeders that were breeding rats themselves. And they said, why don't you do it yourself? And I didn't think, but then I realized my dad used to do it himself. So I was like, all right, okay, I'll give this a go. I started off with 20 rats. Now I've got in excess of 100 breeders. Wow. Just because I needed to expand the colony, just because the snakes expanded. Right. Are are yeah. you just su- supplying enough for just yourself, or do you have some excess that you can freeze and sell? I'd never have excess. No. <laughs> I wish I did, but I never have it. It's, honestly, it just second it comes, it goes. Yeah. So how much time do you spend a week, do you think, just on the rats? Because, it, you know, that's a one thing that I always hear people talk about. Okay, maybe I'll try to breed my own rats, but it is such an extra responsibility. Do you ever regret doing it or does, did it make sense in the end? I regret doing it every weekend when I'm in there cleaning them out. <laughs> that can take more time. I probably On a week, I probably spend just as much time sorting the rats out as I do the snakes. Wow. It that's is a, a big... It is a big responsibility put it that way one of my patrons had actually asked a great question because she i think she knew that you had bred uh you breed on rats do you feed live by the way not that i'm not no, controversial. Never, oh, ever oh, feed live. oh okay never, gotcha never have never will okay that's good i think so the question was actually maybe she thought you were you fed live or i'm not sure why if uh, or she was just asking but do you specifically pick the breeders the the rat breeders that are have a better temperament that are more calm or are healthier or is it just you know you just let them kind of breed on their own i've never had any issues with any rats or like aggressive rats or anything like that i think where they've been so bred through so many generations they're not like wild rats at all i could go in there pull any drawer out pick the adults up even when they've got their babies there's no issues there whatsoever i did have multis the asf mm-hmm. for about four months and I just couldn't get on with them. Would they they wouldn't get going for you? No, they they got going, but I'd say one in five litters that eat their babies, or mm. they try and chew out of the tubs that they're kept in. And I don't know if it's because my tubs are a bit too big for them, because I use the same tubs as I do for my rats. So I don't know if they thought 
I don't know because I have some friends that do really well with multis and I just couldn't get on with them. You're actually not the first person. The person that I get my rats from, she actually said the same thing that multis have or the ASFs were just brutal for her. Just she she had trouble getting them going. Same thing, lots of aggression, and they became way more trouble than they're worth. Yeah, and if the male, for some reason, it didn't happen to me, but if the male in the colony dies, you couldn't then introduce another male because the females would just kill that male. Damn. Whereas the rats, you don't have that issue. They breed like rats. Yeah, they breed like rats, yeah. And do, that's do, so you ever, do you ever uh, play around with prey variety? Obviously, now that you're breeding your own rats, it's probably just easy to breed rats. But, I mean, obviously, you were talking about doing ASFs. Do you ever, you know, choose quail or anything or chicks or anything as well for, for the animals? Well, some of my snakes, so I do get quail, I do get rabbit. Mm. Depends on the species of snake. I don't like to just keep it to just rats. Yeah, yeah, it is nice to, to mix it up. So let's talk a little bit about just herpetoculture in general. Where do you think, you know, you have a very interesting perspective because you have been around it for your whole life in a way, you know, seeing how your dad kept and and Simon Keys and whatnot and taking a break from it yourself and getting back into it and now kind of getting involved in the breeding world. Do you have a perspective of where you think herpetoculture is headed? I feel like it's headed a lot more mainstream. Mm -hmm. Like it's definitely getting more popular. But uh, I don't know. Personally, I think it's getting popular, maybe for the wrong reasons. But yeah. In in what way do you think? Do you, just uh, people getting into it because they just want a cool snake, but don't have a passion, or? I think it's that, and I think there's a lot of money talking at the minute in certain species. Yes. So I think that point that you just made is is a good one. You know, I think, and I assume you're talking about ball pythons because it is or maybe not, but it, it does seem like that is one of the areas where people get into it for monetary reasons rather than having a passion for the animals. Is that kind of your sense as well? Yeah, that is where I'm going with it. I think there's a lot of that in leopard geckos, crested geckos at the minute as well. But that's, I think that's just the way it's going to go. I think the way that social media portrays reptile keeping at the minute as if it's all business, all money, but they don't really portray the passion that you have to have for it, the hard work, the dedication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so true, and I think partly, as you say, you know, getting mainstream is nice because you know there's more equipment and companies become larger and be able to supply us with with better things, and we'll have more vets and whatnot. So it's nice when herpetoculture grows, but at the same time it is kind of dangerous for us to be more in a public eye. And I just moved out of a city that is in the process of potentially basically banning keeping reptiles entirely almost. There's like, I think, 10 different species they can keep. And and that's one of the things that happens as it becomes more popular, right? When it was that fringe thing, nobody really paid attention to it. But now as there's, you know, YouTube channels with millions and millions of subscribers, it is this sort of money focus. It sometimes, it, it almost in a way draws too much attention to us in in it draws attention to us from parties that we don't necessarily want looking at us like animal rights groups and whatnot yeah no i fully agree i think definitely i mean years ago you wouldn't even know if your next door neighbor had any snakes yeah now half of the county probably know who's got snakes and who hasn't yeah 
yeah, it's true. The, the social media is one of those double-edged swords for sure. It's, you know, posting things, getting, you know, finding other reptile keepers, but then, yeah, exactly like you say, everybody will know about it. And so I wanted to talk about the utility of racks with you because you listen to the show, you, you talk, you listen to me talk about progressing care and kind of moving forward. And I do see racks as one of those areas that we could improve at some point. And I, I'll, I'll let you know what my perspective is and then you can maybe respond. I've never bred ball pythons. Yeah. I don't. So I think racks make sense for getting babies started. You know, if you have a fresh clutch, you're getting them feeding, making sure they're healthy and whatnot. Quarantine is another great option for racks as well. And I also think racks would be great for hibernating species, a brumating species. You know, if you had, you're essentially making like a, a burrow and dropping the temperature down of a rack, although you you may have to drop the temperature of the room. Besides the point, you know, that would be an effective way to use a rack. But as we're talking about, as the as reptile hobby becomes more prominent in the public eye, when they when the public sees a ball python rack, for example, it does not give them a good feeling about the the care that that animal is getting. So I wanted to know what your perspective it is, and do you think that there are ways to improve the rack system to increase the welfare of the animals that we're keeping and breeding? Funny you should mention the whole racks versus like the variants because racks are new to me it's only the last year and a half that through keeping ball pythons because i never had ball pythons over the years of keeping reptiles and i've always had big vivariums like you see behind me and for about a month i felt really guilty putting these ball pythons even though they've all got hides in they've all got substrate they've all majority of them have got plants in there as well I still felt guilty. I remember saying to my partner, I don't know I like doing this. I said, I'm used to seeing all these snakes in big spaces and stuff like that. I mean, there is a lot of people out there and a lot of rack companies out there that it's all very minimal. Like, you just about got enough space for the animal and the water bowl. Every single one of my rats has, apart from the hatchlings, they, which are in small, just to get them feed in, Every single one has a, at least a hide in it because I can't just have a snake sat in the box without a hide. That's if I could do another way of keeping all these ball pythons in vivariums and they'd all do great, I would. But I have tried to put in one of the juvenile because we were a pet only ball python who had an incubator issue from the breeder, and I'm not sure what the process was going to be for that snake if we didn't take it on mm. uh, it was born with sharp jaw and it has to be assist fed and a lot of people don't agree with assist feeding but if I didn't assist feed this raw it wouldn't be here now so I, I thought I'd try putting that in a vivarium seeing if it would do any better and I didn't see it I, it was in there for about three weeks I didn't see it I, it just wasn't doing great in there put it back in the tub and it was the first time that it struck at something to eat for, since I had it. Mm-hmm. So I think it all depends on the species. I would never keep any colubrid in the tub or in a rack. I would never keep the Burmese or anything large like that in a, in a rack system. And I believe that there should be decor that the snake can inspect and, should be substrate they can bury themselves in. 
there should be a hide that they can either sit on top of or go under. I think there's definitely ways you can improve rack systems. Yeah, it's true. There is definitely a sort of a spectrum of a rack itself. You know, you have the very small confined box with a paper uh, substrate with a water dish, and then you have all the way up to probably something, you know, along what you're doing with you have a larger space, substrates, plants, and maybe some, you know, like a hide and whatnot. And it, it is interesting because you do hear people say, you know, I moved one animal from a rack to a viv and it didn't do well. So there is some nuance there with each animal as well. I just wonder if, if, if sometimes we get stuck in that, in that, because it is some, like you said, it's, it's, simpler in a way to have the rack because you can have all the animals on one wall and it would be very difficult to have as many animals in a large vivarium and i just wonder if there's the sort of the next step as far as keeping rack keeping goes like maybe just having much much taller tubs for example to provide more vertical space and and maybe provide some lighting inside the systems because at the same time we don't want you know i've had this conversation a few times on the podcast we don't want to make it virtually impossible for breeders to produce snakes because then there will be no snakes and we don't want it to be so expensive that there's no incentive to do it but at the same time we want to as we know as we learn more about the animals to progress that care and i mean i don't know about your rack specifically but sometimes you'll look you'll look at a rack system from like 1992 and then now and it's there's not a lot of change where i mean you know as you said you're adding substrates and whatnot which is great a lot of people aren't doing that. So I do wonder if there's a next phase of racks that we could introduce that might be taller, have some lighting, you know, the ability to add like perches and whatnot. I don't know. Have you thought about that at all? Uh, I have thought about it and I've even considered doing it myself of mm-hmm. having taller tubs because some of my tubs that I've got are actually 50 litres. So they're the taller ones. Mm, yeah. So some of them, like the bigger females, have actually got stuff that they can climb on. I'll try to replicate or the varium as much as possible but obviously there is a certain point where you have to think about space and things like that but the way i see like i can't do clinical for snakes it's just not fair yeah yeah exactly yeah there's there's a trade-off there it's you can make it simple clean and cut and and be able to you know wipe everything out and just change the paper but you are sacrificing the the animal You're, you're sacrificing it's the the enrichment level and 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 its ability to, you know, investigate and, and use its brain, which is kind of a shame. So you, you do want to provide some kind of enrichment for it, really, at the end of the day. Yeah, all my tubs are clear. I can't do the solid grey, solid black. Like, yeah. at least they get the night and day as well, rather than just they get in a sudden quick bit of daylight the second you throw food in there or do their water and shut them back into pure darkness. I don't yeah. agree with that myself. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a that is one a huge issue in rack systems in general. The amount of opaque tubs that I see. So I think if we were to improve that system, yeah, for sure, clear tubs, having a more space, maybe taller. That's all super important to at least stimulate the animal in a way. Like you said, being in darkness its entire life is really not fair to it. Yeah, no, exactly. I fully agree. And there was something else I was going to say about that, but now I forget. It'll come back to me when I remember. How has your, how have you progressed as as far as your care goes? As far as just keeping reptiles go, what are some mistakes that you've made? What are some things that you've learned over the years? Mistakes. Uh, the mistakes I've made is rushing into 
buying a certain species just because I've seen it in the shop and I've fallen in love with it, even mm. if I've been told it's an aggressive individual. And I've learned that once I get it home, let it settle in. Like, for example, I purchased a dwarf Burmese and I was told it's an absolute psycho, but it's up to you if you want to purchase it and take it home. I was like, yeah, I'd love a dwarf Burmese, took it home. I couldn't get this thing out for love nor money. <laughs> so just me being like irrational and just going to purchase that snake the second I see it, maybe the shop shouldn't have sold me it. Yeah. I was an 18-year-old boy, really wanted it, and they just go, okay, that's fine. But it didn't do me any good. It didn't do the snake any good because the snake was getting stressed out where I was taking half hour to try and get it out with a snake hook. So that's definitely a mistake so I've definitely learned from. Yeah, 18-year-olds uh, definitely rush into things. <laughs> yeah, we. I think it's just an age thing, really. Mm-hmm. And just studying what the snake needs, really. I'm, all my setups were fairly similar before, but you learn about humidity. You learn about make sure you've got a heat guard and thermostats and stuff like that. It's just trying to not make as many mistakes early on. Yeah. Is what I've tried to do. And obviously I've had my dad's help and he's said, look, this is how I used to do it. So I've tried to replicate that. But then there's also the new era of trying to, like there's all these new products that you can get, like heat guns. I never used to have a heat gun where I could test the cool and the hot end. And that's something that I've only had in the last six months. Yeah, they, those are huge help. They're, I didn't even know they existed until I see someone else had one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that just simplifies everything. It's just you're not no longer guessing what you're doing. It's just, boom, there's your temperature. Yeah, exactly that. Um, another time... I bought an adult bow constrictor and it was about eight foot and I just got it home and it was in a duvet case from the shop and I put it on the floor and opened the bag up, stood up over it and it's just come and grabbed my arm. Thinking about it now, that was the worst thing I could have done. Why on earth you were trying to unbag a snake on the floor standing over it? Yeah. You just wouldn't do it. Did, it didn't coil you, did it? Just just bit you and let go? It literally just struck at me, grabbed my arm, and luckily it let go because it oh. would have been a serious problem. Yeah, you look like a massive predator about to kill it. <laughs> yeah, now I wouldn't even dream of doing it. So it's just all trial and error, really, and research now. Yeah. And and obviously, you know, you keep some larger species with, with the berms and you've had some experience with, and even your bows, they'll get fairly large. And that's one area that I've always talked, I've started to talk about as well on the podcast is starting to promote smaller species. Because I think just like you said, you know, young people will go, they'll buy a 12 inch or an 18 inch small, you know, reticulated python or a Burmese python because they just want it. And there's just, it's hard to conceptualize how big a 12 or 15 foot snake is, right? So, and we, you kind of mentioned it early on, that you don't have any intentions to breed the berms for that kind of exact reason. Do you think big snakes should be less popular than they are in herpetoculture? I believe that true giants shouldn't be made available as easy as they are. Yeah. Especially the mainland retics and even green anacondas. Not, I don't know anyone that's got space to have a semi-aquatic 
12 foot vivarium in the house. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> anyone or even a spare room to put a mainland retic in. I've always wanted a retic and I never got one until I found a breeder who was recommended by the local pet shop and I purchased a super dwarf male. He's three and a half years old and about five foot. And he's only about that. So he's never going to be one of these giants. Yeah. And I'll, that's, that's the only retic I would ever get. I'll, I wouldn't even get a dwarf retic. The berm, I've always, I only get bows and berms as hatchlings. I've never purchased, well, when I was younger, I did. And I've learned from that mistake. <laughs> yeah. You only truly trust the ones that I've, I think you do, the ones that you've had not hatched but raised yourself yes um getting a female burmese was a big step for me she's uh, she's like the 18 inch small burmese but i know that 100 percent i'm gonna have space for that snake and i will make space for that snake it's not gonna be one of these animals that ends up on a local pets classified 10 foot long and nobody wants it yeah, bring gloves when you come pick her up. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 she's if I'm cleaning some snakes out and I'll make sure that I get her out because when I first got her, she was a bit hissy, and I thought I I don't need even just hissing. I don't need a ten foot snake, fifteen foot snake hissing at me. Yeah, because that's not a nice thing to have. So I make sure a lot of time goes into her now, just like when my male Burmese was younger. I can get him out. And I trust him more than I trust most of my royals. I let my, well, if he's in the garden on a nice, on a nice evening, I let my kids sit with him, obviously supervised and stuff like that. And I know for a fact that he doesn't even hiss. I'm just watching, by the way, he's acting with his tongue flicks and stuff like that. I know he has no interest in striking, biting or anything. Yeah. But... Would I then go and take my kids round a friend's house with another seven foot Burmese and let them just no, I wouldn't. It's knowing your animals, you can't truly know your animals because they are essentially a wild animal, but it's knowing your animals, knowing yourself, knowing your ability to read the animals. That's the way I feel on it, but definitely mainland retics and the true giants shouldn't just be available as easily as they are. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it's a really good point too about growing with the the snake. If you do get a, a snake that is going to get, you know, five or no, let's say like seven, eight feet, it is nice to work with them as a very small baby and, and learn because you do pick up on their body language and you can tell like when they don't want to be, even my boas, like I, I can just read their body language and know they don't want to be messed with today. I could just tell they, they look you know, they, they're content with where they are. They don't not, you don't want to pull them out and whatnot. And yeah, it's nice to be able to have that trust with that animal being able to read their body language. But it is a common story where someone will get a snake. Maybe they don't work with it long enough and then it gets so big. Now they're afraid of it and they have to dump it. And, and yeah, it's just, it would make sense to have less of those in the hobby. I actually saw just the other day on my local classifieds, the, the the title said green water boa. I'm like, what the hell's green water boa? And I clicked on it and it's anaconda. And I don't know if, if they, he was labeling it, mislabeling it intentionally. So it wasn't showing up as an anaconda for 
who, who knows, maybe the, the animal control people, I'm not sure. But I thought, yeah, it's the same, same as you. How are you ever going to have space to, to handle that? It's just very few people can do it. It's a specialist animal. All the big animals, even the big lizards, are specialist animals. They're not made for everyone. And I do believe that there should be some form of license. I think they should go on the DW. We have a DW Dangerous Wild Animals over in the UK. I don't know what you guys have over there. I think that they should be on there. Yeah. There's more responsibility then. Yeah. Yeah, it, it would make a lot of sense. And do you have any lizards right now or are you just strictly snakes? I would love to get back into lizards. I did used to have a tegu, a black and white tegu monitor when I used to keep animals. Um, miss him dearly. I wish I could track him down and see where he was. But the owner who purchased him then sold him on even more. So that was that's pretty sad. Um, we used to, my dad used to have a pair of green iguanas in a walk-in enclosure. Oh, cool. Above the stairs. It, it, it was phenomenal. But yeah, given the space, and because they take up, I find lizards take up more time. They do, yeah. They need more interaction. They need feeding more. They, they definitely need a bit more one on one. And I just can't commit to having a lizard right now. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I would love one. Yeah, they definitely, it's, it's amazing the difference, even from my geckos to my snakes, the amount, the difference in, in just general maintenance, it's, it, there is a huge difference. Massive difference. My sister's got a leopard gecko and she's forever having to go to the pet store yeah. to get different things for it. And I'm like, it even costs you more to feed your leopard gecko a month than it does me to feed my bunnies. Yeah, one meal a month or whatever, <laughs> or yeah. less. It's easier and cheaper for me to keep my Burmese than it is for her to keep her leopard gecko. Yeah. yeah. Now, that doesn't mean everybody should go rush out and get a berm. But no, yeah. that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. But yeah, I remember what I was going to say earlier when we were talking about the racks. I think there's, there's been a couple of really cool things that I've saw. Lori Torini, who's been a guest on the podcast, and she has a, a YouTube channel as well. She just released a video a couple of weeks ago that was really interesting. She took, I, th- I think she just took like a general sort of tub and then placed it in a vivarium and allowed the ball python to use both and i thought that was a really unique idea to allow them to get into the tub and feel safe in there but also have access to a larger vivarium and this was another another guest of mine also had a a similar idea where there would be a large vivarium on top and then underneath would be tubs that so they could you could pull the tub and have the animal in there but then they could you know crawl through a hole or something and enter into a much larger vivarium and i would love to see you know, that's not necessarily realistic to have if you have a bunch of breeding animals, but I would love to see that more often integrated into ball python keeping. I think it would be a lie to say ball pythons don't spend a lot of time nestled underground and, and burrowed, but I think it would be really cool to start seeing enclosures and, and racks push in, into the direction where maybe there's both incorporated, right? Where you have that small, tight, secure space and uh, an, an area where they can go and explore and Maybe they only do that a few months of the year or something, but to have access there, I think would be really neat. I think the only way that racks are truly going to change for the better is if people done quality over quantity and reduced collections and had it as more of a display kind of thing, something to be a bit more proud of Mm -hmm. rather than 
essentially some big breeders are just puppy mills, aren't they? Yeah. Do you, do you think they would ever head that way? Or do you think that the mentality is just too much, I want to make a new morph and make money off it? I think the way that it gets addictive, where I found I was slipping into, was you'd just go on Morph Market or any other website in your spare time and you'd see all this stuff. And then you realize, I haven't got space for all that. I need to put yeah. get a rack. I think that's the biggest issue with the industry regarding ball pythons. But uh, as, do I see it going the right way? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in, it is because I can completely understand that addiction. You know, I could, I could, I, as I said on the podcast before, I think I wanted to get into morph breeding originally with, with boas. And then I, it kind of hit me where, what am I doing? I don't have the space, you know, boas obviously late or, you know, they have giant litters and whatnot. And it didn't take me long to go. It's different getting, you know, six, <clears throat> six ball python eggs. But if you breed two boas, you might have 30 babies and, it, it dawned on me that that didn't make sense. And the likelihood of me being able to sell those into the market that I live in was so small that I would end up having, you know, 50 boas in a year. And it was, it was a dumb idea. But at the time I was like already doing like my punnet squares and trying to think like, okay, you know, all these different interesting morphs that I could create. So I can completely understand how addicting it could get. Right. And then if you're not paying attention to your own behaviors, you could end up forgetting the passion, right? You just end up looking at the numbers, looking at the animals that you could create. And and then there's probably that aspect of even cutting the eggs or, or letting them hatch and seeing the odds that you got, right? There's that excitement as well that there's so many layers to breeding ball pythons that can ma- it makes it very alluring to people. And you can it's easy to lose your way, I guess is what I'm saying. No, I completely agree. Um, I mean, uh, we recently had our first clutch um successfully um and i I just thought i can't wait for the next one Mm -hmm. but that's not anytime soon i haven't even started pairing again yet i wasn't even supposed to be that advanced in it yet because i bought a lot of babies to get used to how they were set up in the racks and i didn't want to jump feet first in because i was new style breeding thing and then a guy who I first got my royal my first two royals from messaged me and said he's not in a position to keep his he had about nine animals nine royals incubators and a hatchling rack he said I'm not in position to keep these anymore I've seen how you've treated the babies that we got from you and now like we've checked out your Instagram and followed your journey we'd really like you to be the one to purchase them and I went home, I spoke to my partner and I said, look, I've been offered this amazing collection. You know the collection that I'm all about because we both went there. And we spoke about it over the weekend and then it happened where we decided, all right, okay, it's too good of an opportunity to pass up. So then I found that I had an adult female and I had a male ready. I had all my incubator ready and my hatching rack, everything was ready. So I was like, right, okay, let's try this out, see how we get on. If nothing happens, nothing happens. I'm not supposed to be where I am yet anyway. And then I noticed she started swelling once I've done all the pairing, started doing her ovulation. And then she laid the eggs like a month later after her prelay shared. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, we've actually done it. 
because it's something I've never done before. Yeah. I've never even thought about breeding snakes when I used to keep them. So then I was like, right, okay, we need to look at what our odds are and what we're going to get. And we've done really well. We didn't hit any normals, even though one of them, even though the female was a normal. So then in my head, I'm like, wow, we could really make a go of this. So then I can see how it becomes addicting because you start doing really well through it and then you sell a couple of clutches and then all of a sudden your bank starts going up and up. You mm-hmm. start thinking, right, if I get that snake, then I can put it with that and then I can get this from that clutch. So I can see how other people are drawn into it and stuff like that. But then what you don't realise is the time that you put in and the effort and even the racks, they're not cheap. The rodents, they aren't cheap unless you breed them yourself. And the setup cost of getting your incubator, your royal, everything, it's not a get rich scheme. And I think a lot of people do fall into that trap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it is so true. People they just look at the price of the snake and they go, oh, wow, you have eight of those out of the clutch, you know, eight times whatever, look how much money I made. But they don't look at the the overhead at all, how much money it actually costs to get there. And then, so is there anything else that you do just mentally to to stop yourself from falling into that, you know, I, I want to have this morph and this morph and, and make this much money? Like, how, how do you stay connected to the passion for the animals? Or is it something that just is more natural to you? Yeah, I just think it's more natural, really. I mean, my true passion is more the colubrid side i'm just dipping my toes in and seeing where this goes i obviously i love the royals and i enjoy working with them and seeing what morphs there are out there but i'm not too embedded into it where that's my main focus my main focus is all the snakes in this room and i will never just get it to a point where i just keep royals yeah so I think that keeps me a bit grounded on how many royals I have, how much I'm going to spend on getting more and more to the collection to try and create more. Don't get me wrong, there is some absolutely fantastic morse out there at the minute that I wouldn't mind getting my hands on. But in a few years, I'd like to be in a bigger property and work more of the oddball stuff like them stuff that you don't see. And then even, I'd like to do a lot with like even the indigo snakes and work a bit in conservation of reptiles. And that's my true passion. So if breeding royals can sort of pave and like even pay for the way a little bit, then that's the way it's going to be for me, I think. Mm. It's a stepping stone to a a greater project, a greater uh, goal at the end. Yeah. I mean, I'm not breeding royals to go and get a fancy car or get a nice house if that happened great but that's not why i've got these animals here my if i can fund my own hobby within the hobby then that's that's more than enough for me Mm -hmm. so as far as the future for lhc pythons you as you mentioned you you're looking at getting a better a bigger space is that something you're already looking into or is that just sort of a a dream right now and you want to have more of a warehouse style in in the future it's a bit of both. There's definitely a dream that's eventually, um, I'm, I reckon in the next couple of years we should have somewhere. I am putting feelers out there and working out finances and seeing whether we can do it or whether, because at the minute, this is actually my old bedroom in my mum and dad's house, hmm. luckily, because we're in a, like what you call flats, apartments, and I had the snakes there. 
in vivariums. And then we got the rack, and I was like, right, I can't do both here. So then the vivariums went to, into here, and I still had the racks in the flat. And I was like, this doesn't make sense, keeping some snakes there, some snakes there. I'm dividing my time. So they all came here. But then I'm finding I'm missing out on family time through travelling here, and it doesn't make sense for the family to come here all the time. So if we can find somewhere that's got enough space to build something either in the back garden, on the side, or whether I just find my own facility that's not attached to the house, I don't know. We're definitely looking at all options at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always think that as well. Like how, a bigger space is always, we always want a bigger space and it, it would be nice to just have to, have to not worry about the walls, right? Where you just, you can do as big as enclosures as you want. You can have as much space for each animal and you're never worried about, okay, how am I even going to fit this in here? And I think one day I would like to do that as well. And, and so what, what draws you towards working with, and you already talked about why you might want to work with indigos, but as, as far as conservation goes, is that something else that you have a passion for? Yeah, I've always had a passion for it ever since I was a kid. The typical reptile keeper, you watch Steve Irwin, you watch even Mark O'Shea. I don't know if a lot of the younger viewers have heard of Mark O'Shea. I know I went to a Doncaster reptile show a couple of weekends ago and he was actually there to my surprise. Oh, cool. I was just flabbergasted that he was even there. And I was standing with some friends and a few other people and I was telling them who it was and nobody even knew who he was. <laughs> but to some people, it was just like seeing, not a celebrity, but definitely an idol. But he was just so overlooked. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, working with conversation, conversation, conservation, knowing that you can make a difference and even reintroduce endangered species would be, I think that would top anything rather than getting money back from a clutch i think that would be more i don't know more value yeah yeah definitely more fulfilling you you would it, you would f- feel like you're fulfilling a deeper role and i think i think many keepers feel that same way and yeah i think you know using the royals as a means not a means to an end but as a stepping stone to get your foot into that and i i think that that's that makes a lot of sense. And, and as I've said before, and you don't have to take this challenge if you don't want to, but I've always said, I always say, if there's any ball python breeders out there that are wanting to set a, or at least a, t- attempt to breed in a larger environment and move away from the rack system or design a rack system that allows for uh, taller tubs, like we kind of already talked about, I would love to see people starting to do that. Because as you've said, you know, w- there is that aspect of people getting into ball python breeding who don't actually have a passion because they just see how simple it is to do and I, I just want to do it. And I think if we had more people doing it on a more, I, w- I don't want to say advanced level, but more enriching level, it would it would cause, I think it would be a bigger barrier of entry where somebody who's just wanting it to do it for the money, they might look at it and go, well, that, that doesn't really seem like something I want to be involved in. So even, like you said, adding substrates, adding all these extra things makes it seem a little bit more challenging than you know the butcher paper and the water dish if that makes sense yeah no 100 agree is there anything that we haven't chatted about today that you wanted to to touch on before we wrap up mm. not that i can 100 think of no probably once this has ended i'll blow off, <laughs> yeah. which we spoke about that 
Yeah, that, that's what always happens. But I think we covered everything that we wanted to chat about today. I think, actually, I saw on your Instagram, you, you can have fish as well, or is that, or did you have fish previously, or do you still have them? I used to keep fish. Okay. Uh, now my dad keeps fish. He's always kept fish. He's had multiple tanks in the past, different varieties and stuff like that. Um, again, given the space, I, I would definitely have fish again. But well, it's they're more work than lizards. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely are clean, like water changes and filter change. It's definitely a lot more challenging. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just saw on your Instagram some fish, so I wasn't sure if you were keeping them or those may have been your dad's fish. No, one of those in there is my fish. So I, I went out and I see it there. And I was like, I got around that. I haven't got a tank. Called my dad up. And he was like, yeah, you can put it in there. It's fine. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so cool. I still get to look at his fish when I'm here and stuff. But yeah, Given the time and space, I will definitely get an aquarium again. Awesome. Well, Luke, I really appreciate you spending the hour with me today. Can you let everybody know where they can find you online? Currently, it's just Instagram at the moment, LXC Pythons. Um, I don't really do Facebook. I prefer the platform of Instagram, but we shall see where that goes. Yeah, and if anyone wants to uh, reach out to you, they can do that just on Instagram. Simple as that. Yeah, 100%, yeah. Awesome. Well, Luke, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a great chat. No, no worries. A pleasure. All right. That is the end of that episode. Luke, thank you so much for spending the time with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. And like I said in the intro, I think it's really important that we couple ball python breeders into this movement of moving the hobby forward. We can't leave morph breeders and people who are using racks out on the side. We want to include them in the conversation and, and include and talk to them about how, what are some ways that we can actually make this better that work for everybody. And, and at the end of the day, as I always say, the animal welfare comes first. So anything we can do to progress that forward, the better. I do want to make one correction. As I was editing it, I heard myself say I have a Suriname Imperator cross boa. I do not have that. I have a uh, Sonoran cross with an, a Colombian boa or a boa Imperator. So to clear that up, I do not have a Sonoran cross, but I do have a, uh, sorry, I do have a Sonoran cross. I don't have a Suriname cross. So hopefully that didn't, uh, nobody got confused there. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Let me know what you think. If you are interested in commenting on the episode, make sure you head to the YouTube version so you can put a comment there. Again, animalsathomenetwork.com is where you'll find information about the show and all the show notes for this episode or any other episode. Thank you very much to customreptilehabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Again, there are affiliate links in the YouTube description or the show notes. So if you do make a purchase with one of those, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And if you want to join us on Patreon or maybe join us at the zoom chat that we're going to have next week on the 21st you can head to patreon.com animals at home i think that is it for this week i will catch you next sunday